It depends on the size of the chair. Uh, I'll cheat a little bit. The big electron, the big electron. So I have cheated very badly, you see. you feel it now what do you want to know what i want to know is what's going on i think it's time to blow this thing get everybody in the stuff together okay three two one let's jam good evening ladies and gentlemen we've got a great show for you tonight let's get right to it Welcome to the Big Electron here on KCAU 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening on this national holiday, it seems, Super Bowl Sunday, and you're here with us. I thought you were talking about my birthday. Way to ruin it. I was going to follow up with that, but I guess you needed to say it yourself. And Madeline's birthday. Happy Hi. birthday. We, we, we're in a celebration weekend, and it's not because of Super Bowl, but because... Madeline's birthday was on Friday. Yep. Anahita's birthday is today. Yay. So happy birthday, ladies. Thank happy you. birthdays. <laughs> happy birthdays. A happy New Year. A happy yeah, yeah. Chinese New Year, New Year happy, also. Happy Lunar New Year to yes, there we go. everybody from, uh-huh. from various parts of the world. Yay. Whether you're from there or not. Happy sure. New Year anyway. So. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. We have a great show for, for you today. Uh, we are aware that it's Super Bowl Sunday and uh, we decided to nerd out on game and football yeah and yeah. football related science. things that are gonna happen that it's something like that something or another that football related science and, and pseudoscience um, <laughs> so uh i'm adam and uh thanks jackie for the intro there um so um i'm gonna talk just for a few minutes about something that i think we really all need to to lay the groundwork for our for our introduction to this sort of you know, vaguely football-themed episode, (laughs) which is the most important thing. And I know you can already tell where I'm going with this. It's microorganisms, Mm -hmm. of course. I mean, you you know. (laughs) Um, So let's talk about how important microorganisms, which are tiny little creatures that are too small for you to see with the naked eye, um, let's talk about how important they are for you to enjoy um, your Sunday evening. Specifically, let's let's start with just one of the many friends that you have in the microscopic world, which would be Saccharomyces cerevisiae, um, which excuse me, that, yeah, <laughs> yeah, bless you, bless you, uh, yeah. uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Um, uh, this is something that some of us biology nerds uh, will already be familiar with as S. cerevisiae because mm-hmm. it's often used in labs as a model organism. Yep. It is a tiny yeast, mm. a single-celled yeast, which um, which likes to do a particular thing uh, a lot. It <laughs> likes to ferment sugars uh, into such materials as ethanol, what you know as uh, alcohol. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, in fact, that's what the name means. A saccharomyces means sugar fungus. And that's oh, okay. what it does. It ferments sugars, including the sugar found in certain plant materials, um, which uh, once the saccharomyces is done with it, become beer. <laughs> so, 
without these little guys um, fermenting your beer into what you know it as, you would be having a heck of a lot less fun while watching television. So um, just in tribute to them, I thought I would talk a little bit about beer and yeast and, and what they do for us. Sure. So in the process of making beer, uh, we start with, um, you know, hops and, and barley uh, and all those all things. Jazz. I've never really known what hops are even. <laughs> I <laughs> I know what it tastes like. Yeah, I know people say this thing is hoppy. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, I'm not a beer expert sure. either. But I can tell you from, from reading things in the encyclopedia <laughs> and online, uh, which is how I do all of my science, um, that, um, uh, that the purpose of one of these, I think the barley, yeah. is to... Um, to ferment it or to actually germinate it just a little bit so that it starts producing an enzyme which will break down the uh, the starches in in its own plant material or in another plant you put with it and break those down into simple sugars and the benefit of that is that's the stuff that Saccharomyces eats mm-hmm. so that provides that starting point provides the raw material for food Can I interject a little bit with some information on hops? Please do. Hops are a flower, and um, Mm. it... If you've ever had an IPA, there's kind of a bitter, tangy flavor that's from the hops. Mm -hmm. And so IPA is an India pale ale. Um, And And usually those are the hoppiest Those are the hoppiest because they were... Additional hops are added to them. Mm -hmm. Hops is uh, a flavoring agent as well as a stability agent. Mm -hmm. So on um, ship trips back in the day going to India to get spices and tea and all of that, they would put extra hops in the beer because it would preserve the beer oh. for the long journey. So that's and why that's, it's an India pale ale? That's why it's uh. India pale ale. The India oh. trading company uh, wow. would add extra hops. <laughs> Fun beer fact. So I, I also, I also Googled hops. <laughs> yeah. And it says it's also an antibacterial. And so, you know, you have this perfect growing environment for mm-hmm. all sorts of chaos that can happen. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. So we want to keep the Chaos the yeast happy, life. but the microbes not so much. Yeah, I've heard that keeping keeping only the yeasts and bacteria and various collection of microorganisms you want is one of the big challenges mm-hmm. of doing brewing correctly. Yeah, uh, so that's one of the main things. So I just recently started brewing because why not? Cool. And that's awesome. One of the things that when I was reading and preparing for it, and like everyone online and people that I've talked to said make sure you sanitize every single thing that you use mm-hmm. because you don't want any bacteria in there because it will damage the quality of your and the flavor sure, of your beer. Right. So <laughs> yeah. Also, that, you only gross. want, yeah, and you only want the yeast there so that it can do its proper job and like sugar and everything cool. and wow. give you a nice beer. <laughs> that is neat. <laughs> well, there's, here's one extra little fact about this. So I guess an industrial scale, Brewing, mm-hmm. uh, they have two two general categories of how they do this fermentation. When the yeast is in the the proto beer, uh, you know, doing its job in converting sugars and ethanol, they have what's called top fermentation, which is okay. when the yeast cells rise to the top of the fluid. They sort of float up at the top, and then they have bottom fermentation, which is the opposite, where they they sink to the bottom of it. Um, when they're ready, when it's done, they'll siphon off some of that. Like in a top fermentation, they'll take some of the fluid off the top, which has a really high concentration of yeast cells, and save that to be d- 
distributed into the next batch. Oh, a starter mm-hmm. culture. Exactly. It's oh, like sourdough. They have cool. to keep that starter culture. So um, yeah. different kinds of beer might use slightly and subtly different yeast strains and types of And that also you know, helps with the flavor, area. using different kinds of yeast. And yeah. um, I also went to, and this is not a promotion, I went to Boulevard Brewing Company, which is in KC. I did the tour last weekend and... That's one of the things that they that they use. They they call themselves a green facility because mm-hmm. they try to reuse everything or like all the waste doesn't necessarily go to mm. waste. And that's one of the things that they were saying that they reuse their yeast. And yeah, they put different amounts for different beers and stuff like that. But all of their yeast, since it settles, it like you can reuse it. Um, it's not going to die. Well, it will eventually die, but... Right. Um, they but try I mean, to reuse it. Yeah, yeah. it's a population. They, they Repro- reuse repopulating it. itself right. with mm-hmm. each new time. And so they they, re- they reuse it for for their brewing. Beer brewing is so cool to me because it is there is science behind sure. it, yeah. but it's such an art also. Yeah. You kind of um, have to be creative about it, but there's there's a science uh-huh. behind there's that. Science art. behind it, like you know, you can't really add X amount of things. Yeah. Like it's it's experimenting, but also yeah, it's art. kind of I don't a. Know, it's, it's I know a lot of people science. get excited about the microbrews and everything and these local places, mm-hmm. but I was reading some article a long time ago that was saying that these things are great, but it's really highly respectable that these um, giant companies that we think of as producing really low quality beer, <laughs> they said, it's really impressive that they can get that same exact low quality beer every single time. <laughs> <laughs> It's apparently pretty hard to the reproduce. Reproducibility yeah. of bad beer. Yeah. <laughs> of what some of us call sure. bad beer. They must have really know. strict controls. Like, no, this cannot get any better. This must stay yeah. exactly where it is. <laughs> so, speaking of beer, um, this was published by a professor actually here in the university, a professor in the School of Medicine, and it talks about what binge drinking does to our bodies. So most recently, binge drinking has become a problem in what the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism uh, defines binge drinking as a pattern of drinking that brings a person's blood alcohol concentration to 0.08 grams percent. What that means is when men consume five or more drinks or women consume four or more drinks in a period of two hours. Mm-hmm. So that's what's considered binge drinking. One of the issues now is that they estimate that approximately one in six adults binge drinks about four times each month. Okay. So that one would weekend, be like one day, a weekend. Yeah. yeah. In a weekend. Every weekend. You know, it, and we're at the university, so we can say, you know, college students, um, this is a growing issue. Mm-hmm. And, Absolutely. Um, and in college populations and, and in just... Uh, drinking in general. And so what they looked for is what are the effects of binge drinking? And this professor focused on epigenetic alterations. So what epigenetic means, it's um, changes in the DNA, but not necessarily the genetic code. So it's just like above. It's little tags. It's a little tags. It's above. So epigenetic means above the, uh-huh. the gene above or above over. gene above or over yeah um so they looked at that and what they found was that when you binge drink there are serious effects in histones uh-huh. um, liver and all um and other organs in your body so histones are proteins that compact and organize the dna strands 
um, mm -hmm. and they protect the DNA strand and help it function correctly. And so um, some of the epigenetic modifications that occur naturally are histone modifications, but they see an increase in binge drinking for these modifications or what they call unnatural modifications. So what that means is that it uh, changes how a person's genetic code is interpreted and regulated mm -hmm. because you have all of these things modified and, you know, the DNA can uh, affect uh, how the body's producing proteins or altering mm -hmm. proteins and uh, correct binding of the DNA. And this is this results in unnecessary replication and copy mm. structure. And you can imagine all the things that can happen after that. Um, initially, they see that binge drinking causes inflammation and damage to the cells as they form, but eventually causes more serious diseases such as cirrhosis and cancer, uh -huh. as you would expect. Um, like I mentioned, they have seen that it's... Um, the liver is the mostly affected. The reason for it is it's the main metabolic site in the body. And so, of course, it would be the first organ that experiences this yes, damage. It's the cleanup crew. Right, it's the cleanup crew. But since the liver is responsible for nutrient and drug metabolism and distribution, um, it sends signals to other organs. And so something else that would... that also affects is uh, the heart, kidney, blood vessels, and the brain even to function mm -hmm. properly. So the liver damage can affect, can eventually have an effect on other organs. Um, so like I said, uh, what they see is the liver, it's the mainly affected one because of the histone modifications. They create an inflammatory response. It's kind of like um, the professor Shukla describes it as a cluster bomb that then sends out various damaging signals to other systems in the body. And if all of those are working at a lower level, uh, there's a whole host of physiological processes that are mm -hmm. affected while you're binge drinking. Um, so it's, it's an issue. Uh, and they looked at that of what are the effects and they will be, you know, long-term effects, not only, mm -hmm. you know, alcohol consumption, but all of these other effects that will eventually accumulate and cause more damages to other parts of the body. Mm -hmm. So, wow. hmm. yeah, and epigenetic um, just traits in general, you know, we generally think of, of from father to son, mother to daughter, you know, through the next generation, you, you give your genetic code, but we don't really think about the, the epigenetic code is being passed down. But I believe recently that's kind of um, been shown to be the case that even these, some of these modifications can be passed down from generation to generation. So we're even talking the potential, you know, I don't know in this case, mm -hmm. if that's what we're talking about, but you could, you know, these long-term yeah. effects are really long-term. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah and when uh, we say long-term, we mean the next generation yeah. or even the third yeah. generation, which is kind of how epigenetics started looking at not only daughters, but also like granddaughters or sure. grand, mm -hmm. grandkids. Yeah. Well, epigenetics is that whole field of when we started realizing very recently that there's stuff that isn't exactly coded for in your DNA that might just get passed along from one generation to the next anyway, which has sort of surprised 
everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we'd been assuming for the last like 150 years that that just didn't happen. Right. Um, <laughs> but um, but, but it does at some level. And it you, does, yeah. If, if certain uh, behaviors that you have will. Yeah. When we say behaviors, we mean like alterations to your DNA. Mm-hmm. We'll yeah, I up. mean, there's all sorts of environmental things that can affect this. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I heard one study that looked at twins. And so if you look at twins when they're six years old, they their DNA, you know, we're talking um, mm-hmm. identical twins. Right. So same DNA, they have almost all of the same, same epigenetic markers. And then if you look at some twins who are 60 years old, all of a sudden their epigenetic markers are just totally different because they've lived different lives. One of them started smoking, yeah. you know, the other one went tanning, all these things um, change your epigenetics throughout your lifetime. Yeah. And it just accumulates. And if you binge drink, that adds to it Just another one of those things, yeah. yeah. Just another one of those. But um, yeah, continuing. So tonight, Mm -hmm. if you're watching the Super Bowl, you're going to be drinking and you're going to be eating. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you'll be eating some, Hopefully a lot of snacks. Hopefully you'll be eating some cheese. Yes. Oh, cheese. <laughs> cheese. Adam, why don't you tell us about cheese? Well, because I don't know anything about cheese would be the reason <laughs> that I, I couldn't do that. But I will try anyway, because it turns out that cheese does have something uh, in common with beer, which we've been talking about in some form or another for the last 15 minutes. They're both delicious. That is correct. <laughs> Uh, yes, and that is the end. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> that is uh, microorganisms again, returning it to this. So so just to tie these two together and make an artificial segue here. Um, <clears throat> yeah, enjoy the, the products of, of microorganisms uh-huh. responsibly, mm-hmm. everybody. Uh, <laughs> so that we don't alter our DNA and histones. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, so cheese is a... Uh, a milk product, as you all know, um, and what happens and with it's that delicious, is, yes. is a delicious milk product, but it doesn't start <laughs> as cheese. It doesn't come straight out of the cow as <laughs> cheese, um, which would be really? an impressive, I would have never guessed that. An impressive technological advance <laughs> if that was to happen. Um, this is done, cheese is made by uh, acidifying uh, the milk, which is making it more sour, and this is... Uh, done through a complicated process that I don't entirely understand, and I'm sure very few people do, but it involves bacteria. And just like with the yeast populations that we keep from one generation or vat of beer uh, to the next, um, these um, populations of these bacteria which make uh, a given cheese or other fermented product are kept, uh, a portion of it is kept from one set or Uh batch of it uh, in order to be a starter uh, for the culture that makes the next one. So that's why you can have many, many, many different kinds of cheeses from all the same starting product, which is uh-huh. milk. Because uh, you're not getting hugely different kinds of milk from different cows. It's pretty much milk is milk. But, right. Um, cool. You've Just got different so, bacteria. Many, so many different options of cheese because you've got not only different you know, ways of processing it in terms mm-hmm. of how long you keep it and so on, but mostly it's because they have different bacterial populations, mm-hmm. which was all kind of done in a traditional, we have no idea what's in here, but it works <laughs> kind of way for hundreds or thousands of years. But at I this always point, wonder how they got to the smelly cheeses. Man, who thought that was a good idea? Somebody they do end up tasting good, but I there's nothing about that that when I enter in a room where that, you know, I don't want to just go up to it and eat it. <laughs> Somebody 
There are braver people than we are. <laughs> out there, definitely. Because no. Um, but yeah, this um, <clears throat> cheese is uh, not alcoholic, as you may be aware. Um, <laughs> so it's got an entirely different kind of fermentation process than what the yeast is doing uh, to the barley and hops, mm. you know, and all that. Um, so they're converting the sugars, the, you know, the same basic uh, food. They're converting basic sugars and milk, but they're converting it into lactic acid, which is what makes it... Um, more sour, and then that sourness, uh, when concentrated, can allow you to separate the semi-solid portion mm-hmm. of the milk mm-hmm. from the, the part, which is called curds, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. into the, what mm. will become cheese, and then you mm. can get rid of the whey, which is the liquid part, um, where all of the uh, water-soluble stuff will remain in that whey in the liquid part, and you don't really want that for cheese. That's not what the point is. So. <laughs> you want to solidify. Yeah. 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 That well, would be... And- that yeah. would be well, <laughs> well, well, if you like well, grilled cheese, but you know, to begin yeah. with, <laughs> yes, uh, I, I guess originally, it can originally be solid. can be solid. And you mentioned lactic acid, and one of the fun thing, things about lactic acid, somewhere else that you might hear it is, uh, lactic acid is what makes you sore after you work out. Oh yeah, true. Accumulation of lactic acid on your joints, it's makes your muscles a little bit mm-hmm. sore. So. Yeah, and it's because of anaerobic or, you know, something that is in no an environment oxygen. without mm-hmm. oxygen. Mm-hmm. So, and that's what's happening with these cheese bacteria, I believe, right? I mean, I think they're in an anaerobic yes. environment. Yes, the, typically. That's that's my understanding anyway. I think so. I, think, I don't yeah. actually know, but I think no. so. So next we have to try cheese making. <laughs> yes. We'll, we'll get educated on this by doing it and we'll get back to you yeah. in a few weeks here. I do have this extra fun fact, which is totally off topic from that, and I apologize. I don't know. I don't know the (laughs) answer to that one. But um, Swiss cheese has holes in it, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Apparently, during the aging process, one of the many bacteria that are part of that cheese culture that makes Swiss cheese produces carbon dioxide, and it forms the bubbles. Okay. Oh, that causes the holes. Yeah. That makes so much sense. You can thank bacteria (laughs) and microorganisms for. The holes in the Swiss cheese, which is clearly what we're all celebrating. <laughs> um, so, gay bacteria. Yeah, it, it and does cheese cool stuff. and cheese. Yeah. So, Since I am now hungry. <laughs> well, I'm going to help with that a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, the American Chemical Society um, recently released uh, the scientific guide to ultimate super Super Bowl nachos. <gasps> Since you mentioned cheese, one of the fun facts from the ACS was how to get the ultimate nacho cheese. Okay. So, um, of course, the ultimate nacho cheese is hot and stays um, drippy and creamy and runny mm-hmm. because you don't want it to just solidify in the top notches. Yeah. You want it to seep through all of them and then stay <laughs> that way. So, if you're going to pile a bunch of cheddar into the microwave and you want it to stay a goopy goo, what you should do is add sodium citrate. Now the science behind that is cheese is made up of dairy proteins that are pretty much suspended in water. So it's all together, it's all held together by proteins that are linked by calcium molecules. So if we add an acid like sodium citrate, it will attract these calcium molecules and uh, kind of let those those milk those dairy proteins roam free. Okay. So it keeps them from solidifying because they're not linked together into a structured form. Uh-huh. They're allowed to move around a little bit. And so if you don't and have- And spread across your 
tortilla chips. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Your natch chips. <laughs> have a nice drip as you dip into them. Yay. So, yeah. Sodium citrate can be found at grocery stores, but let's say you can't find it, then add a little lemon juice. Any acid okay. should be able to do that. That seems more helpful yeah. because I've never, <laughs> ever noticed at least sodium, sodium citrate. citrate. Yeah. There's citrate, so much stuff that citrus. we don't notice when we That's go in true. there, though. That's yeah. True. <laughs> but so, citrate, mm-hmm. it's it's derived from, or sodium citrate, it's just like a salt type of what's in citrates, which are lemon, right. orange, Different citrus, citrus fruits. fruits. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so add a little bit of lemon mm-hmm. juice and that will that'll do a trick. Hmm. Now, if you're um, me, then <laughs> no nacho plate is complete without guacamole. Mm. So another step that the ACS um, gave us was how to have the best and healthiest guacamole. Healthiest. Healthiest. So that first, seems so anti-Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're eating nachos, so yeah, it's a balance. Sure. <laughs> Got to reach equilibrium. <laughs> so first of all, to make great guacamole, you have to have ripe avocados. So let's say you go to the store, you ran out today and got some avocados and they weren't ripe. So ACS suggests to help um, get them to ripen faster at room temperature, you want to put the avocado in a paper bag with a banana. Okay. So um, fruits Seems and- Seems like Mojo Jojo or something. Yeah. Some sort of magic <laughs> Just like, trip. what is a banana yeah. going to do? <laughs> well, um, other fruits, especially bananas or fruits and vegetables release- Ethylene, the chemical, uh, the chemical ethylene as they ripen. Okay. So as uh, the avocado sits out on its own, it's producing ethylene and releasing it. Bananas also do this, and they're very high in how much ethylene they release, release in comparison to other f- vegetables. And so, fruits. And fruits, yeah. So if you put, yeah, banana. <laughs> <laughs> so if you put a banana and the avocado together in a paper bag, uh, the avocado's ethylene will be trapped as well as the bananas, uh, forcing the avocado to ripen faster. So you just have to sacrifice the banana yeah. for the greater good. Yeah. This is amazingly <laughs> tricky. You can always have banana bread. That yeah. takes a super that's ripe banana. <laughs> yeah. Well, so what's important about this um, that's kind of subtle is the paper bag business. Okay. So uh, if you use a plastic bag, it will work, but not as well as a, as a paper bag. The reason is? The reason is because of the way that a paper bag is formed there, it's a porous material, unlike plastic. There's holes in the paper bag. Yes. Uh, Among other things, but. And so there's these holes in the paper bag that allow molecules to escape, but because of the shape and size of ethylene, it can't get out. So it kind of just concentrates more and more and more as time goes on. And it releases, it helps, it's kind of like porous filter type thing where it helps other molecules to leave, Mm -hmm. but ethylene stuck, it's it's stuck in the paper bag and that helps quicken the The ripening ripening process. process. Yes. So I would want my, my paper bag to be like as small as possible. Yeah, that would be good. So you want to crumble up the yeah. paper bag. So maybe a banana that's like smaller. <laughs> <laughs> and then I did say healthy. Thing. So uh-huh. um, what's important to note is that avocados have been shown to have a lot of antioxidants. Mm-hmm. However, those antioxidants are right up against the skin of the fruit. So if you're using a spoon to get out the avocado from its from its skin, mm-hmm. you're probably missing out on the healthiest part of the avocado, and you mm-hmm. actually need to scrape 
against the skin with the spoon to be able to get the most antioxidants out of your avocado. So not because you're stingy, but because you want to be healthy, yes. you have to like scrape you everything. You have to get everything <laughs> out. Everything out. Um. Yes. And then the last little guacamole thing I have is um, adding salt drains the water out of the cells of aromatic vegetables. So if you add salt to the avocado, you get the most avocado flavor because okay. the water mm-hmm. that is in the cells are kind of being drawn out and it's not diluting that flavor. Yeah. Uh-huh. So that would be the same for the onions and everything Absolutely. you're adding in. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. nice. Thank you, American Chemical Society. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. And then so let's say you make too much guacamole. I'll give the last guacamole <laughs> hit now, I guess. Um, Which is doubtful, but yeah. okay, let's assume that somehow you end up with I feel like you can't have guacamole. too much guacamole. Right. But let's assume <laughs> so you there's have a eight. lot. It's been said many times in many different um, cooking vlogs and on cooking shows and recipes that whatever extra guacamole you have, you should put the pit back in because it keeps the guacamole from browning. Well, uh, this is wrong. (laughs) So there's nothing special about the pit that keeps guacamole from browning. It's just uh, the guacamole's exposure to the atmosphere. It's it's interaction with oxygen that's causing the browning process. So yes, the pit will prevent some of the guacamole, but only because it is covering some of the guacamole. It's just as effective to cover with saran wrap or something like that, as long as you push down against the actual surface of the guacamole. Just get all the oxygen out. Yes. Fair. And I'll let it... Okay. So yeah, thank you, American Chemical Society. I hope to Oh, we also talked treats. about... Didn't we talk about alternative... Uh, Theories behind how you could do this. Like, so if I just um, oh, yeah. dumped a whole bottle of olive oil on top of it, <laughs> yeah, that, that would, would do it too, right? That would absolutely do it because it's just covering uh-huh. the guacamole. Making this layer. Yeah. So there, I, I've also heard it that if you cover it with lime juice, there's nothing in the lime juice that's helping. Uh-huh. It's just being covered and that's okay. all you need. Cool. Publication right. still pending. Yeah. <laughs> so we've been talking about food, but what if I'm like... You know, I started the new year and I was like, I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to go into a diet. And then here comes the Super Bowl. Now it's time to give up. You should have seen that coming. And now, (laughs) yes. It's like it's here to ruin your diet. (sighs) Well, um, Dr. David Grotto, who also authored the book 101 Foods That Can Save Your Life, um, has it found that, that splurging on your diet is not an option, but mandatory. (gasps) <gasps> yes. Yes. <laughs> so you should uh, have your weight loss and eat cake too, is how he puts it. I like this. Is yes. this a psychological thing or a me- me- metabol? What, what is uh, that word? Metabolism. <laughs> yeah. Like, is it psychological or is it actual? Or is it real? Air <laughs> body. So I, I think it's a, uh, it's mostly psychological, according to okay. Dr. Grotto. Um, not to say that there isn't more to it, but mm-hmm. just according to this article I'm reading, it's mostly psychological. He says it's called that you should consider structured cheating okay. and that a diet <laughs> is really about making choices about what you eat uh-huh. and being fully aware of those choices. And that when you splurge, if you are consciously aware of that splurging, it'll help you make better decisions in the long run. And sure. so if you structure your splurging on one day mm-hmm. and have a cheat day, like the Super Bowl, then days leading up to that and days after that, you'll be more aware of the fact that you already had a cheat day. Mm-hmm. Now I have heard that there are a lot, um, that it is better for your metabolism to have cheat days, but 
just while we were preparing for the show, I didn't find any really hard scientific evidence behind sure. that. So that doesn't mean it's not out there. Yeah. It just means I didn't stumble across <laughs> it while mm-hmm. I was preparing for this. Yeah. No, that sounds great. So for, for everybody out there who is celebrating uh, anything today, this will come as a relief uh-huh. to you. So mm-hmm. congratulations. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You just are- be super aware Starting tomorrow, that yeah, no cheat days. You have to be very strict because you had your cheat day today. And if you're a little bit worried about um, lapsing into gluttony, Mm -hmm. as I would do, (laughs) then uh, all of us probably. Doctor Grotto suggests uh, getting a calorie count, memorizing the calorie count of your favorite foods. Oh, and it's just kind of this subtle back of your mind Mm -hmm. reminder of like, oh, I ate that cheeseburger, and that cheeseburger is X amount of calories. And I know that, and I'm aware that I was eating it. And yeah. huh. that was a choice I made. So I can't make that choice every day for every meal. Uh-huh. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. yeah. Super cool. So it's okay to have some cheat dates. Uh, cheat days, not dates. <laughs> <laughs> you can make a date out of it. <laughs> this is going on a date tonight. Yeah, sure. With my hamburger. I think we need to be careful with our vocabulary. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he likes territory. to wine and dine me. All right. Well, if, you, if you're like super hungry like I am, um, thank you to... What is happening? <laughs> uh, we'll give you a break, a short break. We'll go on a short break. Hopefully you... Go you know, get a snack. Go get a snack or something. <laughs> and here we'll we'll just keep reading and try to get our minds off of um, foods. And we'll be right back. You're listening <laughs> to the Big Electron on KCAU 88.1 FM. All right. Welcome back to the Big Electron on our Super Bowl special type thing, maybe. <laughs> Ish. Some, yeah, some, we know about the other, Super Bowl. Yeah. <laughs> Sciencey things which, that we can nerd out on. <laughs> Super Bowl, which the Super Bowl is just starting. So, oh, yeah. Um, you can listen to the radio and uh, they are not the Super mutually Bowl. exclusive. No, but they're they not. they're also completely unrelated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you can have more fun with us and then you can, you know, watch it on TV. Yeah. <clears throat> Adam's mom. <laughs> 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 All right, so we're we're I'm talking we're talking about about Super Bowl, and this study was just released uh, last week, actually, and this is a study made by uh, a couple of economists, um, one based in Cornell University, and the others and Tulane University. This was published in the American Journal of Health Economics, and they did this super. Random thing, but cool, really, really cool thing. And here's what they found. They found that there is a downside to having your local NFL team advance to the Super Bowl because there's a spike in flu-related deaths. Wow. Deaths even, not even just... (laughs) More people get the flu, more yeah. people die. Wow. I mean, <laughs> more people so get dramatic. the flu and more people die. So what they did is um, they found the geographical areas that have an NFL team advance to the Super Bowl. They found that it had an 18%, 1.8% spike in flu-related deaths among people about the age of 65. They also found a greater increase in flu hmm. people that had the flu. <laughs> so... I, I mean, I think of flu season as starting before mm-hmm. the postseason. Mm-hmm. Around October, that's mm-hmm. when people ask you to yeah. s- start get your flu, your flu shot, shot and all that stuff. And it goes all the way until probably now. 
Wait, so you said people over 65, Mm -hmm. they're the ones that are dying? Or is that- That they saw an an increase in in deaths. That's interesting because you wouldn't think they'd be the ones who are like nuts about the Super Bowl. (laughs) Yeah, so (laughs) here's what they did. They analyzed data from, um, let me get the years correctly. So they, they, they looked at county level data. So they went all the way down to counties. They analyzed the data from 1974 to 2009. And they compared the rates of influenza related deaths in area that had an NFL team in the Super Bowl to the rates in places that also had football teams but did not reach the Super Bowl that year. Oh, okay. That was their control uh-huh. group. I think it's cool. pretty reasonable, right? Uh-huh. Sure. Um, and what they found, and they, they looked at, of course, they had to narrow it down, so they focused on the mortality of those over um, 65. And what they hmm. found is that there is an, an increase in and that in flu-related deaths. The reason for this, as you may have expected, is, you know, your team is more, uh, your team is going into the postseason, and, you know, you're, like, excited about it, and so what What do you do? You consider... Uh, so, so the way the way they they see it is okay. Of course, it doesn't have to be a, a direct correlation. It doesn't mean that an older person is at a bar watching the team. So, mm-hmm. what could be is that, let's say, their daughters and sons, or you know, a relative is at a bar, then he visits his parents or whatever, or yeah. a worker at a retirement home goes out to get a drink and celebrate, then returns to work the next day, and transmits the disease to mm. this vulnerable mm. population. Mm. Um, so what they found is that, um, you know, that as you, as, as you might have expected, you go to the bar, there's more people there, you have more contact, you're cramped in a small space, mm-hmm. you host Super Bowl parties or postseason parties, people come in, you're out there eating your nachos with them and sharing your awesome guacamole with them, double dipping mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Yeah. And it increases the um, the contagious uh, yeah. virus. So this is reminding me, I know a lot of nurses um, will say that, you know, flu season isn't really related to the flu so much as the really the really um, poor health habits we have around this time of year. We're always inside because it's cold. We're eating mm-hmm. Christmas cookies and all this sugar, which is just terrible for our immune system mm-hmm. um, and stuff like that. And we're so, holiday parties, yeah. office parties, coming back home. Also, going people home. tend to drink, which yeah. affects your immune system also. Yeah. 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 And so when you were saying Missile this, I was toe. like, you know, maybe this is another <laughs> one of those effects. But that control of, you know, well, did your team actually make it to the Super Bowl? Um, because you know, the only difference between mm-hmm. making it to the playoffs and the Super Bowl is really like a week, right? A, and a week in a game or something. Uh, yeah. Like that, yeah. Three weeks. I don't know. Okay. Two, so three, three So postseason started right before the last, like right before yeah, the new so year. But I would yeah. think, still. I would think if it was all these compounding effects, I mean, I'm sure part of it is a bunch of compounding effects, but mm-hmm. you would think there wouldn't be this huge difference between just that one little fact. So yeah, I, I just think that's really interesting. Yeah, and so you would another thing that we, you would think would be, well, what about the cities that hosted the right. Super Bowl? Yeah. Where is the what city? About how like how clean are they? How? They they yeah. found no change. Wow, no change at all. 
So the cities that host the Super Bowl or teams that have 